the outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you're going tomorrow? Yes, I'm going tomorrow with the advanced team. I'd like you to take me with you. Are you trying to get me court-martialed? Can I trust you with something? I've been having dreams about a girl falling in battle. Felt like a vision. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. To the future of House Atreides. You have to be ready. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. They're not human, they're brutal. What if I'm not dead? You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. Come on! My son. Welcome to the Strange Harbors podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by Amir Ture and Eric Wong. So tonight we are discussing the long-delayed, long-awaited Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve and adapted from Frank Herbert's sci-fi epic, which has long been deemed unfilmable. Um, so it's finally here! After so many years, COVID delays, this was originally slated to come out last December. Is that right? Uh, yeah, December I think of 2020. So. And it's finally come out in October of 2021. I saw it at New York Film Festival. I saw it in theaters, not on HBO Max. I don't want to sound like a theater purist or whatever, because, like, you know, obviously with COVID, just be comfortable wherever you are, wherever you want to go see this movie. But. I do feel like the theater experience definitely helps this movie. And I saw it on a regular theater screen. I kind of wish I saw it in IMAX. What about you guys? You guys saw it this week? Yeah, I saw it the night it came out. Oh, the night it came out. I wasn't expecting to, but I started seeing spoilers. Like, not spoilers, but like just people's reviews and stuff. And I was like, I don't want to know. I want to go into it pure. I was like, I have to see it tonight. Yeah. And the other thing which I noticed, which actually I think is a good sign for this movie, a good omen, is that when I was reserving tickets in IMAX, the theaters were pretty full. 
And this is the first movie in a long, long, long time where I can say that. I mean, for the last few months that I've been going back to movie theaters, like, with, like, I don't know, the end of COVID or whatever, it's still been really, really, really poor attendance. You know, sometimes you're the only person in the theater, right? Um, yeah. I think uh, Titanic, it was like me and one other person or something, you know? So I'm used to these movie theaters being almost completely empty. And this one, I had to look around for a couple of different times uh, to find a time at the IMAX theater, which had a good seat and stuff like that. Man, I don't remember the last time I had to do that. Like, go from screening to screening just to find a seat. Like, it's it's been so long. I was pretty impressed. I was, I was definitely shocked. And it wasn't just like, oh, one screening on Friday. It extended into Saturday, too. So I was like, wow, like, this movie oh, has, wow. it must have really good buzz with this really large amount of Dune Faithful out there. Did you see it in IMAX IMAX? Yeah, I saw it in... Or quote-unquote LIMAX. <laughs> Ooh, that's a very good question. I actually don't know. I think if you don't know, then it's probably it's most likely real. Right? Yeah, it probably wasn't. Yeah. I think if you go to a real IMAX, the first thing you say is it says like, holy shit, this screen is, this is big. fucking yeah. <laughs> massive. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of like true IMAX yeah, there out aren't. there. So I saw this movie on i guess the night before it technically came out but the same day it came out on hbo max i saw it mm-hmm. on thursday night a lot of movies nowadays they'll have like early screenings the yeah, day yeah before. like the day before yeah and i was surprised to find that you know my theater wasn't full but it was still a lot more people than i guess i was expecting because i i honestly didn't know what was like the temperature when it came to like dune like i know i was really anticipating it right and this is like one of my favorite directors this cast is just stacked to the brim. I mean, I was really excited, but I honestly didn't know what the general populist mindset was. And, you know, it's good to hear that Amir's theater was pretty full. My theater had a decent amount of people, especially on, uh, you know, the day technically before it comes out. And, you know, I didn't see it on IMAX and I saw it on a regular theater. And I, I agree. I, I wish I could have seen it on like a much bigger screen. But, I mean, time constraints and just the closest thing to me is is just a regular theater. But I'm still very happy that I saw it in a theater. Yeah. But I did go ahead and rewatch it on HBO Max too. <laughs> yeah, man, me too. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to watch it again and rewatch just because it's free on HBO Max. I did the same too. Just, mm-hmm. just because I could. <laughs> yeah. And this movie's long, right? What's the what's the runtime on this? Two and a half hours. Yeah. Two hours thirty six minutes. It's around the same length as the new mcu movie that's coming out as well but it does not feel nearly as long as that one well i was gonna say it's as long as pretty much no time to die and i had my quips about that movie feeling a little bit too long but i was ready to watch another hour hour and a half of this movie like i want the second part now yeah (laughs) well your wish has been granted because they've greenlit part two for october of 2023 I believe so. <laughs> what an insane gamble, by the way, to just be like, yeah, we're just going to do the first half of the book and uh, hope it doesn't go to the second half of the book. Like, that's wild. And it, like, potentially ends the story in a really unsatisfying place, I think. I guess we'll get to it, but, like... Yeah. I think everyone was ready to go with part two, but it's not, like, the confidence where you have, like, The Matrix or Lord of the Rings where you, like, film back-to-back, right? I think yeah. people were pretty sure that they wanted to go forward with part two. And I'm sure Denny wanted to to do this too, and 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 really complete the story. I mean, it would suck if it just stopped at part one because this is all right. So this is definitely not a complete story. 
Mm-mm. It definitely stops, not at an awkward place, but a little abruptly, I think. And it, and it covers, how much of the book would you say it covers, Amir? Probably yeah. a yeah, third just, just or a half? A little, a little more than a third. I think it's about the right split, I think. I think it's fine. Um, I think... The thing about this is different from, like, Lord of the Rings or something, where they did film back-to-back. But say they only did Fellowship of the Ring. At least that's a complete book with a beginning and an ending. Right, 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 right. Yeah, (laughs) it's part of a larger story, but at least it's a book in a series. Versus, like, just doing the first half of a single, like, I don't know, however long page book. Like, Yeah, it's it's a really ballsy decision. I'm glad it paid off. I I really do want to see the second part. I'm, I'm very excited to see part two. And and speaking of books, I uh, I tweeted earlier today that if uh, if Dune Part Two comes out before fucking The Winds of Winter, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> I'm gonna Dude. lose my shit. <laughs> I'm pretty sure The Winds of Winter hasn't come out in the time of Dune, which is the year ten thousand. <laughs> George R. R. Martin is still writing it. <laughs> Not to get too off topic, but I do feel like the way it ended on HBO, the, the series Game of Thrones, I think it really did a number on him. And I feel like he's just, like, super deflated from that. And, oh, you think he's, his morale no, is, is down? Maybe, maybe. I don't know, man. I, don't know. I think he's just rich and old and is like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, writing's mad hard. I kind of already made it. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's working That's on it. That's true, too. But... That's true, too. Because the time in between novels has only increased as uh, the series has gone on, right? So, I mean, this is not a Game of Thrones podcast, but I'm like into the books as well as the show. So, like, it's a very intricate thing he's trying to do with the plotting where he is. I can get how it would be like technically difficult or whatever. But come on, man, you got to put this book out. And, dude, <laughs> there's another book after that. That's the insane thing. I know. Dude, Winds of Winter is book six out of a planned seven. Whoa, I thought it was the last book. No, six no, hasn't even no, so. No, no, no. It's the penultimate. So, I don't know if he's going to make it, man. <laughs> I don't know. Let's just cross our fingers. Let's 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 give him some of the spice melange to extend his life band. <laughs> uh. Well, I guess it's probably no secret how all of us felt about this movie, right? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't uh, know. I don't know. Uh, on okay, all right. Hold on there, my friend. I think all you're right. gonna have to take some more of the spice melange and develop your uh, psychic <laughs> abilities because you're not you're not predicting the future very accurately, motherfucker. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna preface this with I'm a big Dune fan. I love the first book. I think it's really genius. I haven't gone on and read the rest of the series, but I just think the first book is really just unbelievable, like, bit of world building. It's one of those sci-fi classics where you read the book and you're like, oh, I get why everybody says this is a classic. It's super, super imaginative and incredibly influential in, like, the history of, like, science fiction and all kinds of different franchises from Star Wars to Warhammer. I mean, it's huge. It's, it's an enormous book. It won... Uh, it won like the Nebula, uh, won the Hugo, these big science fiction literary prizes. It's sold an enormous number of copies. How much has Zoom sold? Okay, almost 20 million copies. So a lot. Dune is like a big deal for as sort of under the radar as it is, right? It's like as under the radar as you can be and still be an enormous property that millions of people are like huge fans of, right? Um, like, it's not right. Star Wars or Star Trek or, I don't know, the Marvel Universe or whatever, but it's big enough that there's tons of people out there who really love it. But I don't know, maybe because there was never a successful movie adaptation, um, maybe that's why it hasn't made its way into the zeitgeist. I don't know. But the book is huge, and I really love it. And I was coming into this really wanting to love the movie, and I didn't love it. I kind of just liked it. And 
I, I'd say actually on first watch, I was disappointed. And I don't know if that's because of – okay, I think that it's it's two things. It's one is seeing the promo shots and the trailer and all of this, it just looked like Denny took a, a, a an angle with the visual language that I just don't know if I love. And all of my like sort of worst fears came true as far as like the choices he made artistically. That's one thing. And then two, also, I do think that my like detailed knowledge of the book was also kind of overshadowing it. And I was unfairly sort of saying, oh, well, they cut this. Why did they do this? Why didn't they do that on my first watch? So I did go back and watch it again on HBO and um, I did like it more on the rewatch. But yeah, on the first watch, I was a little disappointed. I was in the B minus C plus territory. I was, oh, I was wow. not as ha- not I was not oh, that wow. happy when I walked out at first. But I'll, I'll say that with the caveat that I still was really, really excited to see part two, and I'm super glad that um, he got the chance to do it. Can I ask you a question as a person who's a book reader or has read the book? Derek, have you read the book? No, I haven't. Just to give a preface, I have never read the book. I've never actually seen anything Dune like uh, the. Lynch stuff or the documentary. I don't know anything about Dune. So I, I came into this very fresh without any kind of knowledge and like definitely needed my handheld a little bit in the sense that I needed a lot explained to me because this is a very immersive world. But I did have a question before I guess I'll, I'll talk about my impressions. Would you say this was a bad adaptation? No, I don't think it was a bad adaptation. I think Denny made some choices. Yeah, he made some like visual choices and like cutting choices in the story that I don't entirely agree with, but I wouldn't at all call this a bad adaptation. It might end up being like the definitive visual adaptation. It's almost certainly going to be the thing that people think of when they think of a film, dude, this is going to be it. Yeah. I guess maybe I'm the exact opposite of <laughs> of Amir. You know, like I've already said, I've never read the book. I've never, I don't, I don't know anything about Dune. So I kind of came into this, like I said, super fresh. And I left the movie just astonished amazed and convinced that this is definitely going to be in my top 10 of the year. I got to say, I love that for you. Um, <laughs> I, love, I love it for me. I love it for doing like, that's awesome. I'm super glad that this franchise is like grabbing people. So I just want to say, I'm not, I'm not at all mad at the fact that you loved it. I, I fucking love that you loved it. Tell, tell me more. Like what entranced you about this? I can't remember a movie this epic in scope and just the world that he builds. I haven't seen a level of this since maybe like, the matrix right this movie that has just this kind of outworldly ideas and then but also these characters that you fall in love with but that are still mysterious and i don't know i was just so astonished by the way he like created the vehicles and the the people and the relationship of the family i loved and then um the idea of like the fremen and the idea of spice and like the sandworms it just all worked for me and that's definitely credit to you know herbert's book but also i think just the way like denny kind of shot this movie and like presented the first half of this book and credit to the adaptation too i mean if if you were able to like get all of that out of it and understand and enjoy these things then i think to some extent it means he made an adaptation that's accessible to people who aren't fans of the book and i'm uh, like i love that he was able to do that yeah i i gotta ask were you confused at all like what was going Um, on i was not really i was I understood it. You know, it's about two warring houses that both kind of serve this emperor, right? And then one dignity and fair Verona, where we set our scene. (laughs) (laughs) House Harkonnen is the one that currently controls Arrakis. Uh, House Atreides is brought in to basically become the new stewards, and then 
this is kind of a power play from the emperor to try to eliminate. My understanding is it's a play to get rid of the House of Atreides, but then also might be a play against House Harkonnen. And yeah, and then this idea of like spice and the idea of like this messiah that Timothy Chalamet's character of Paul might be. Like none of these questions or none of these ideas have like full answers by the end of this movie. But I'm I was okay with that because I understood that this was a part one. And I'm like so interested, like, is he going to become this messiah? Like, what is going to happen to House uh, Atreides now that, you know, like Paul is technically the leader? And, and like, is Dave Batista actually going to get more screen time in the second movie? <laughs> um, you know, like all these questions I had, and, and I'm definitely interested to find out more. Like, I'm, I'm itching. I really want this movie already. <laughs> okay, so we got the two warring houses, right? You got uh, House Harkonnen versus House Atreides, and it's really a battle over this substance uh, that's found on the planet that is called Spice. My understanding is that it is a material that, I guess, is used for interstellar space travel i wasn't knowledgeable enough to like understand is it like some kind of fuel how exactly do you use spice to travel i also understand that it's a hallucinogen part of the reason why paul is seeing his visions and the fremen use it also as some kind of like drug it's basically a drug so uh, am i am i correct about this Samir? no yeah you're definitely right so it's a drug and the cool thing is it's like it's both a drug and a form of transportation. So it gives you like a longer lifespan, greater vitality, heightened awareness. It can unlock any powers of like seeing the future that you have, which I think is kind of what's happened to Paul. It is a hallucinogen. I think – I don't know if this is discussed in the movie, but basically interstellar travel happens because like the guild navigators who have a monopoly on transportation – they are the only ones who have the ability to fold space with their minds, but they need spice to do that. And the spice only comes from Arrakis. It's like the one place in the galaxy that, that has it. So it's like an ability that these people have? Yeah. The guild navigators, they're like kind of like mutants. <laughs> but they like okay. have, not like the X-Men, but they're just like, I don't know, like a an offshoot of humanity sort of. And they're like their special ability is that they can kind of see the future in limited ways and they use that ability to like fold space time and like travel intergalactic distances but they need the spice to do this so without the spice there's no interstellar travel and that means there's no empire so this person is able to make a, like a ship travel at interstellar that's what i'm like confused by so my understanding is that they use the abilities of prescience to like find the safe paths through space time or whatever so like they're navigators i don't think they fold the space themselves. I think the ships probably do it with their engines, but you need a navigator in order to fold space safely. That's my understanding, but I could be wrong. Oh, okay. I, I think they serve the function that, like, I don't know, the hyperspace warp computer does in, like, Star Wars or whatever. Like, you've got to calculate the jump or whatever. And, like, if you do it wrong, you can blow up and end up in a star or whatever, right? Like, I mm -hmm. think that they kind of do that, but they're people, not computers. All right, so... Spice is very important, <laughs> yes. basically. <laughs> yes, spice is very important. You got it. Spice is very important, and the only place you can get it is on Dune. All right, you don't need to answer this. I, I probably don't actually want you to answer this, but I do get a little bit of, like, Total Recall vibes from this movie because there is, like, a point where they talk about how, like, the planet was going to be made habitable. I think they said something, like, to the fact that it would eliminate all the spice in the world. It would get rid of all the, the mm -hmm. deserts and everything. And it just reminds me of like the end of Total Recall when he like puts the hand on the on the machine on Mars and like makes it basically like gives air to everybody and makes it a habitable space. 
great movie. Love Verhoeven. <laughs> you absolutely frame your question in the right way. I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to have to see uh, part two of the movie to find out. I guess I'll, ha- yeah, I'll definitely have to see part two. Though. <laughs> so now have you gone and done your background reading on Dune and stuff like that since or no? No, because I don't want to know what happened. Good, good, like, good. I'd rather, okay, that's I'd rather really good. figure it out once. When, I when see part the, two comes out. Sec- All right. yeah, I, I love that. I love that for you. That's a great decision. Um, I do want to ask you some questions, and I will try to do them without, like... <laughs> I was going to say, if this is getting the spoiler area, maybe we should Jeff give his impressions first, and then we can do we sure. can get into this? Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the thing is, I, I love this, and I don't necessarily agree with Amir on the artistic aspect of like, the production design that didn't really jive with you, Amir. But I'm a book reader, too, so I've read the book probably maybe seven, eight years ago. I haven't reread it since. But there are definitely areas where I'm like, I can't really hold it against the adaptation because, like, can you dock an adaptation for cutting stuff out of the source material? No, right? Um, You can't really. But I do feel like this inclusion of one thing, which we'll get to later, would have made this a lot better and a lot less empty than it actually ended Mm -hmm. up being they kind of like cut out this whole subplot which i was really surprised by but that's basically my take on the movie i really loved it i loved the world building like you said and you know like people say this story is unadaptable unfilmable but like watching this movie you're like why did people say anyone ever think that right I think mostly because of the failed adaptations that have come before, you know, because of you have like Hodorowski's Dune, which was a complete failure, and and the only thing that came out of that was uh, the the documentary called Hodorowski's Dune, um, which is just about what a shit show that whole production was, and then you have David Lynch's adaptation in the eighties, which has a lot of apologists for. I think a lot of people do dig it. Yeah. But I do think it is kind of incomprehensible. Like, just compressing that story down to, like, two hours, it just doesn't really work. And, like, it's ambitious, for sure, but it's it's kind of a mess. So Lynch Lynch was... Oh, yeah, he's disowned it. Well, well, not just that. Not just that. From the beginning, he wasn't super interested in sci-fi or in doing sci-fi. And so this gets back to your like original question, Derek. Like, is this a good adaptation? This is so far the most faithful adaptation because um, Denis was a fan when he was a kid. He was a fan of the yeah. book. Whereas like Lynch and Hodorowsky, like they just wanted to use Dune as a jumping off point to do a movie about like their sort of particular obsessions. Which is cool and like makes for great art and stuff. And like these are like Filmmakers with like very distinctive styles and whatnot, but it definitely doesn't make for a faithful adaptation. Dune doesn't really seem like David Lynch's bag, typically. No, not at all. Like right? I was reading about yeah. it, and like he's just he's just he's not that into sci-fi or sci-fi adaptation. He'd never read the book. He inserted a lot of weird stuff, which there was really no need for. So yeah, in terms of like faithfulness, like this is definitely going to take the lead, like by far. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, 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 his movie, it's, it's got apologists, it's kind of a cult classic in some circles. But I, I agree with you. I think it's sort of fatally flawed. And um, it's definitely not faithful, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think you... No, 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 not at all. And, you know, like, it's got so many themes to it, right? You got, like, colonial oppression and, like, the ecology of Arrakis and then 
this messiah figure in Paul, and, and there's so much stuff going on. The real world parallel to like climate change and the Middle East, like the oil wars. Like, I mean, obviously, the spice is an allegory for, for oil. I can see why people thought it was unadaptable just because of how sprawling it is, but I do think that they did a good job with this. I think the, the spectacle is just very, very arresting. I, I loved it. He made it look so easy. Yeah. You know, I've heard that too. Like, it's just, it's unadaptable. It's like, there's no way they're going to be able to film this. And then it's just like, who ever thought that? This is amazing. And, and I don't know, maybe Denis Villeneuve is just the, the perfect director for this. Yeah. What are your experiences with uh, Denis Villeneuve as a director? Like, do you love everything that he does? Are you a Denis Villeneuve stan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of Denis Villeneuve's work. Like, I love Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner 2049. I mean, I don't love them all, but I definitely appreciate his work. And like some works of his, I love more than others. Yeah. So I'm the least of the Denny heads on the podcast, I guess. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't dislike him. Just none of his stuff is like, wow, I absolutely love that. Sicario's good. Arrival's very good. Uh, but still not like, I don't know. Still, like, I didn't like it as much as you guys. I know both of you, like, loved this film. It was, like, your top, like, in the, in the top couple films of the decade for you. I didn't love Arrival as much. 2049 was just okay to me. And as I'd said, I was initially disappointed with Dune. I'm, I'm warming up to it, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't say he's my favorite. He, he just, he does a lot of genre work and he's, he's somehow now trusted with these huge budgets and become this, like, uh, the, the adapter of other people's sci-fi work. So, if you're into genre stuff, which I am, you're going to see a lot of his work. So There are not that many filmmakers of Villeneuve's caliber. I think, like, on his level, maybe, like, Christopher Nolan, maybe. And, like, Villeneuve's even been tested in ways that Christopher Nolan has not, right? Because Blade Runner 2049 was not a success, mm -hmm. and he was still handed the reins of Dune. Like, who can you say that for, right? Where you have something that wasn't, like, commercially successful but you still get to make dune and like pretty much write a blank check but i've also heard that that's part of the reason though why dune part two wasn't greenlit right away or even before dune part one came out was that they wanted to see the success of dune part one because of what had happened with blade runner 2049 right this mm -hmm. kind of very beloved movie of, of blade runner like you would think that a, a sequel would just be an automatic hit but because it wasn't, I think, part of that plays into why Dune Part 2 is now only being greenlit after the success of the first weekend. Eh, I do feel like they were overplaying the cachet of Blade Runner and, like, the power of that property. Like, I don't even think that's on the level of, like, Dune, right? Mm. Uh, Dune is, like, immensely popular, and Blade Runner is just a Ridley Scott movie from, from the 80s, right? I mean, it's it's revered for sure, but, like, how has that fandom translated over the course of like three decades right it's like it's hard to tell and like i i do think they overestimated how popular or like how willing people were to like revisit that world right i don't love the original blade runner that much either i know that sounds like sacrilege and um uh yeah i don't know 2049 didn't do a ton for me either sorry i actually like 2049 more than the original <laughs> wow even more sacrilegious nice <laughs> the heresy podcast <laughs> My problem with, not to get too derailed, but, like, my problem is, like, there's so many versions of the original Blade Runner. Like, which one is, like... The real And they're one. different, right? Yeah. And, like, there's a director's cut, there's, like, the ultimate cut, and, like, 
every single one is different. One's got a stupid Harrison Ford uh, voiceover in it, you know? <laughs> I love it. It's good. Uh, I, I just do think that 2049 is, is just a little better. But anyway, <laughs> Dune. <laughs> All right, Abir, what were some of those questions that you had for me? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> hmm. All right, let's try and phrase these in like non-spoiler ways. Okay. I know, please so, try your best. <laughs> like, what's your understanding of who Fufir Hawat is? What? <laughs> that might be a, something you need to explain to me real quick. I don't right. quite remember that. Um, his role is so small, Derek doesn't even remember his name. <laughs> uh, so Stephen McKinley Henderson? Oh, okay. What he is, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, so that was definitely a little confusing. My understanding of this world is that there's not really, like, technology in the sense of, like, computers and AI. But then he was somehow able to know how much money they spent. And, like, I, I saw his, like, the white of his eyes activate and, like, that... To me, was some kind of signal that he was getting some kind of information from somewhere. I don't know. Explain that to me. Dude, that's really good. That's really good. So, like, that's – I mean, again, uh, shout out to Denny then because, like, I think he conveyed, like, kind of the essence of it without ever having to belabor it. So – and this is, like, one of the really cool things about the Dune universe that, like, I don't know. made it fully across in this film. Maybe it's going to come in part two. Maybe it's just background lore that – who cares? But – for me, it's like one of the cool things about it. So like, I guess in this world, you're absolutely right. There's no, so there's no computers above a certain level of technology. There's no AI. There's no what are called thinking machines. Because in the past of this world, uh, humans went to war with AI, a little like the Matrix or something. And then after that, they've decided like no, no more, more thinking AI. <laughs> machines. Yeah, no more AI. You may not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind or whatever. Um, it's a whole thing. It's called the Butlerian Jihad. <laughs> oh, it's a great name. And so because they've gotten rid of computers, they have these people called Mentats. And Thurfir Hawat is one of them. Uh, they have these people called Mentats who are human calculators. They're like human computers, human AI, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, they're human beings and they train to achieve these levels of like logical thinking and you know computational ability and whatnot. And then, so David Domostian's character is also one of those, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay. Because I noticed that he does the eye thing too, like in the movie. So. He's the twisted mentat, Peter DeVries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to just ask that and see if that got across. Because I okay. suspected it it hadn't. And I think it's such a cool piece of like background history that like the mentats are like this huge part of the of the uh, uh, of the background story. It's an unusual approach because the screenplay it does a good job of like getting the mechanics across, but the lore is so interesting and it's weird that they leave it out, you know? Mm -hmm. Because they got that across because you got what those characters were. Yeah, you were. got the essence of it, absolutely. So like yeah, they did a great but, job like, with that. But, like, you didn't get, like, the, the cool backstory about, like, the Butlerian Jihad or whatever, which, yeah, which yeah. I think is, like, really interesting. And I think, I don't know, maybe they couldn't, like, fit it in, like, organically or something, which I do appreciate about this movie where, like, there are times where it holds your hand when it absolutely needs to. And then there are other times where it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of applies to, like, you know, uh, Lady Jessica's whole deal with the or the Bene Gesserit or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I benefited a lot also from that second viewing where I picked up, up 
a lot more, I think. You know, especially like you're saying the stuff with the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Like I picked up more stuff about the Fremen that like I don't think I got on the very first viewing. Did you put on subtitles <laughs> the second time? Yes, that also helped. I was going to say that is one little thing that maybe is like a gripe for this movie for me was the that. The sound mixing. The sound mixing wasn't the best. It kind of reminded me of some like cr- critiques of like Nolan movies, right? Where like the music might be getting too loud or the sound effects are a little too loud or someone's talking a little too softly where I didn't completely understand, especially because, you know, there's a lot of words and names and stuff that are not, you know, part of my own regular diction that I, I don't know if they're saying something I'm supposed to recognize or if it's something I don't recognize, right? So that. All right. I got to say something about sound mixing because I find myself critiquing sound mixing a lot. But now I just think my hearing is dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I turn subtitles on all the time. Like, I have to have subtitles. Mm-hmm. So, like, when mm-hmm. I go to the theater and they don't, they don't have subtitles, sometimes I'm just like, what the fuck did they just say? <laughs> and and maybe it's not that the sound mixing is bad. It's just that my hearing sucks. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Like I said, you know, this movie, they're throwing a lot of words there are and names yeah, yeah. and places and stuff that are not, you know, part of the regular English dictionary that, like, I just don't know. And I, I definitely, like I said, benefited from the second viewing with subtitles mm-hmm. on. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you guys, and I'm, I'm hopefully I'm not asking this and then I'm going to spoil myself. But, okay, so this has to do with the ending. And we, we can get into this because I know, like, I think we're all relatively on the same page. If you're, like, kind of taking this as a singular movie... It is a little bit not as satisfying as I would want it to be. I know that it's a part one and that there will be a part two. So, I mean, I guess it's that debate of like, well, shouldn't every movie kind of stand on its own? Or do you recognize that this is a part one to a part two? So you are okay with it not having the most satisfying ending. Like, what what are your guys' thoughts on that? Before I, I have, I have like a more specific kind of maybe lore question, but I actually do kind of want to get your guys' thoughts on that, like the ending and. And the fact that, I don't know, for me it was a little disappointing, but I want to know what you guys thought. I think it's the most elegant way of doing this, because the novel is so dense. Like, what else are you going to do? Make one five-hour movie? Like, it it makes sense. I think there's some awkwardness to it. For me, as like a, a critic, I can't actually fully evaluate part one without seeing part two, you know, because it's like a complete story. But like, I'm okay with it. I don't I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, the fact that it's uh, part one of two didn't really bother me at all. I'm, I know there's definitely people who it did and would have bothered. Um, and there are a lot of people who were bothered by it. They're like, this is like a weird place for this to end. Like, it's very odd. Um, for me, I think I was totally fine with it going in. I already knew it was a part one, which a lot of people did not. Um, and that would definitely disappoint you if you're going and expecting a full movie. I think the movie's long. Like, it's two hours, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. But I think it could have packed a lot more in. It feels a little empty. Like, it feels like they could have fit in so much more in that two hours. All right, are we, are we getting into this thing that, we, that I no, mentioned earlier? Even, not, not, it doesn't even have to be that exactly. Just it feels like instead of two hours and 40 minutes for part one and two hours, 40 minutes for part two, instead of like five hours, why not just do one three-hour movie or three-and-a-half-hour movie? Like, you got to make more cuts. I don't know, if you just make it a little denser, like, it feels... Sparse. It feels like, you know, when you've worn the one ring too long and your life gets stretched out. <laughs> That's, like, what it is. Like, like, like a little bit of butter is whatever too much bread, right? Like, it just feels like 
he could have used a lot more butter. And there was a lot more to use, and he just decided to, like, be very stingy with it. All right. You have piqued my interest, Jeff. Is this something that will spoil anything? I'm curious no, what no. this thing No, it will think... definitely not spoil it. Well, maybe not definitely not. They may still go to this well a little bit. I don't think so. All right. I feel like we're just fucking stringing people along. Like, what the fuck are they talking about? Yeah. But that storyline concludes in this first half in this movie so i don't see how they can revisit it how they can reopen that so okay yeah let's let's go ahead i'm curious what this is so they cut out a big subplot in this movie from the novel which i won't actually hold it against it because like you know adaptations are their own thing and like yeah, if you it's didn't a read very the book, economical you way it. it's a very economical way to to, to save some time here yeah, but the emptiness of this movie could easily have been filled by this subplot. And the subplot is that they think that Jessica, Lady Jessica, is the traitor within House Atreides. Right. So, like, in the in the movie, it's, like, not even clear if they know there's a traitor, right? But in the book, it's very clear there is a traitor, and it's just a question of who it is. So, like, uh-huh. the Duke... Jessica and, like, all his advisors, so, like, Duncan and Gurney and Thufir and Paul, everybody's trying to figure out, like, oh, who's the traitor? And so, Thufir thinks it's Jessica. Jessica's, like, not sure who it is. And, like, Dr. Yui is overlooked because, like, in the books, he's, like, I don't know, he's a sook doctor or whatever. And they take, like, some oath that makes them incorruptible. But I guess the Harkonnens figured out a way to break that conditioning by capturing and torturing his wife. (laughs) so i mean that's still there that's still in the movie right but you know the whole subplot of who the traitor is is not i don't know derek did you know there was a traitor before like yui just did it i mean i had a sense because there was the seeker that was sent after paul and they said that it was someone from the inside they try to divert your attention with that dead body they find in the wall or whatever but, like, I still had a sense that someone was, you know, playing some kind of long game and that it, it could still be some kind of traitor in the midst. Because I, I knew something was going to happen. Like, something had to happen. Where- I, I, I think you'd probably live in, like, Westeros or, like, on Arrakis, dude. You're, you're, you're properly suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I, I I'm too suspicious. I, I don't think that was intended. Like, that, that, like, the whole Hunter Seeker thing, it's just supposed to be, like, a dude who, like, like it's just supposed to be a straight for, like, that, that dude stayed behind and, like... You know, uh, was it was a Harkonnen spy, and they catch him, and like that's it. But the, you know, um, yeah, there was originally this whole other plot which they cut out, and it gives like Lady Jessica a lot to do. It gives Thufir a lot to do, and these are characters where I feel like you don't really see. Well, I guess you see a lot of Jessica in the movie, but it would have given her so much more to do if she was in this plot line. And it's a cool plot line. It's very I don't know Game of Thrones. It's the kind of thing people like this kind of palace intrigue stuff with like yeah. you know the Duke. Like, has to pretend that he suspects Jessica in order to make the Harkonnens think their plan is working, even though he actually doesn't. But he's, like, acting like a dickhead to her, and she's like, dude, what the fuck is up with this? And then, like, um, Thufir suspects her, she's suspecting him. Like, they're all trying to figure out who it is, and it ends up being Yui. I don't know. It's like a whole plot which would have been really good. So what's the inciting incident that they think there is a a traitor amongst their myths, if it's not the hunter-seeker? Okay, so I think there's like an arboretum in the uh, in like the Atreides house on Arakeen, and Lady Jessica finds a coded message there that was left by another Bene Gesserit, and like the message says like, "Oh, um, there's like definitely a spy like in your household." Mm. 
And so then um, she already knows to like be looking for somebody. And then Thufir is like a spy master. He's just like you. He's always suspicious. <laughs> and, like, and, then, <laughs> and then after the attack, it's like, oh, well, obviously someone let down the shields. And it's not common knowledge that Dr. Yui did it. I mean, the whole issue is that this subplot gives all these characters in the movie that are a little underserved. It gives them so much meat that it seems weird to like cut this subplot out. Right? Because, mm-hmm. like, Thufir gets, like, almost zero screen time in this. Oscar Isaac is great as the Duke, but, yeah. like, his whole plot is a little rushed, right? By, like, halfway through the, the movie, he's fucking dead, you know? And I would have wanted to see more of Dr. Yui from, uh, from Chang Chen, but, like, you don't see that much of him either. It's just a little awkward, I think, that they didn't include this. It would have been an easy thing to include and add some meat to all these characters, I think, but... But they just didn't. Well, okay. So I, I have a question for you guys. And this might start delving into some of the lore and, and potentially what could happen in the second part of this movie. But my understanding is that Paul's character is able to have these visions, right? You know, he sees Zendaya's character of Chani. He sees events that happen in the movie before they actually happen. And he is also prophesized as this messiah, right? I'm sorry, I don't remember the name that they give the, the messiah. Hatterack? Yes, thank you. Better learn to pronounce that before our second episode on this, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying the messiah. Um, <laughs> Cop out. Very much so. And there's a point near the end of this movie where he starts having visions of the Jamis character, played by Babs Olusan Mukun. Mm-hmm. And he sees him as like a mentor, but he also sees a vision where there's a, a voiceover saying like, in order for you to become this Messiah, that you have to die and then rise again. Very Jesus-like. So am I to believe that he was t- supposed to die in that fight and become this Messiah? But then in that moment, he chooses not to? No. So I don't think he's meant to be a martyr here. I think the implication of the movie. And this is like a subtle thing that I didn't get at first either. I think what he's doing is he's showing that Paul can see potential futures, but that the future isn't always completely 100% set. And that like, there's a future in which he and Jamis could have been friends, right? There's like a little bit mm-hmm. where like, Jamis is like telling him about the desert. It's like, you have much to learn, but I will teach you or whatever, right? So it's like showing that like there are different potential futures and that our actions can, to some extent, change the future. And that maybe had Paul chosen slightly different actions, maybe there's a world he and Jamis could have been friends. But that, that's just mm. not this world. And I think the same is true of like his vision of like this uh, cross galactic war that, that that potentially is going to be set off. I, I think that's still supposed to be a kind of a potential future, but not set in stone. And like touching upon like the potential features, like he could be like two different types of messiah, right? He could be the Bene Gesserit's as Hatterack, right? Or he could be the the body of the Fremen. So I think that's also like a a thing that this movie touches upon. Is it explained that properly in this movie? Like I feel like it's not super clear who like the Mahdi is or whatever. Yeah, I don't think it's explained in this movie exactly what the Fremen prophecies are or like how they relate or whatever. What was your sense of that, Derek? Well. There is a line in the movie where he notices that all the people are like pointing at them and like he says like, oh, so the Bene Gesserit have been here instilling their beliefs on these people too. So like I always thought that they were just the same thing. Like they had the same belief, but it was just a different name. I didn't realize 
that they're technically like one believes one thing, one believes the other. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So it's my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, that for the Benedictine sort of the Quetzal's Haderach is like the culmination of their like multi thousand year breeding program to create a psychic talent who can like I don't know control space and time with his mind or whatever. <laughs> Whereas like the Mahdi is like the um, Fremen savior who's going to like lead them to paradise, and so. I don't even know if this is like Miles Brother, but just to confirm what you kind of already saw in the first movie, the Bene Gesserit implant this um, myth of like a savior who's going to come to Arrakis and he's going to be like the child of a Bene Gesserit and he's going to be like the savior of the people or whatever. And so they implant or weave their like manipulations into the pre-existing myth culture of the Fremen. And like the implication is that they do this on a lot of different planets. So that if a uh, Bene Gesserit ends up there in trouble, maybe they can use the religious awe of the people as like, I don't know, a tool or whatever. It's like a manipulation. Yeah. Mm. But I, I don't know if that implies that the Fremen don't also have their own like organic indigenous beliefs as well, right? Like I don't think it's mm-hmm. all a Bene Gesserit lie or something. I think they weave that in there with pre-existing culture and myth, you know, as a method of manipulation. But these are two different things. Like, the Fremen myth stuff, it's like, it's some of the stuff you're seeing in the movie where, like, Kynes is like, oh, he he wears his still suit, like, the way a Fremen would, without anyone Mm -hmm. teaching him to. Interesting gender swap on Kynes, by the way, who's a man in the the Mm. novel. I liked it. I I do think the Fremen are a little sidelined, considering how important they are, at least in, like, the second part. They are kind of, like, just on the periphery of this movie a bit, which which I didn't expect. Like, Zendaya is, like, basically a glorified cameo. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I feel like that's what part two is for, right? Yeah, it's really yeah. going to dive into that, like, Fremen lore and, like, I mean, we're basically, at the end of this movie, diving into one of the sieges, right? They're going to go back to their siege and, like, I feel like this is, like, a Navi situation where we're, we're, we're going into the tree. Right. <laughs> I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but like, what do you guys think of the cast? I mean, I personally love like Oscar Isaac as the Duke. I mean, Rebecca Ferguson as the lady. Like, I, I think the main cast is great with Timothy Chalamet as Paul. I don't know how much of the characters we get in the books, but I wish we got a little bit more of the Duncan Idaho character. Wish we got more of the Gurney character. Um, like you said, a little bit, maybe a little bit more of the Fremen. There are a lot of characters that are sidelined to really focus, like, I think, on the main, like, Atreides family. Yeah, they, yeah. Got a, they have, a, like, a real murderer's row, and I was super excited for this cast because I was like, holy shit, everyone they add to this cast is, like, someone who's done a lot of work that I like. Like, I was super psyched about this cast. And in the end, I didn't think Denny gave them enough to do. There wasn't a lot of meat for them to chew on. It, there's a lot of, you know beautiful shots of like the desert and like big shots of like giant ships i feel like it lacks the real meat for a lot of the acting there isn't enough work for these people to do i think timothy chalamet i guess gets the most obviously mm-hmm. and then like rebecca ferguson probably after that even then he's a little subdued timothy chalamet he does get his moments though i think he's really good in the in the gondra bar scene where um he has to pass the bene Gesserit test Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the clear standout is Rebecca Ferguson. As, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lady Jessica, she's so good. Um, I fucking love Rebecca Ferguson. I, I, I think you guys know that already. Yes, <laughs> she's really good in this, right? Like, I think uh, 
I think she just plays her emotions really well, and she she gets some meaty scenes to chew on, so I do like her performance a lot. Everyone's good. I think Jason Momoa steals the show as Duncan yeah, Idaho. Yeah, He's fucking great. He's one of the few, like, super fun characters. Yeah. Like, he's one of the more fun characters in this movie. The, movie, the movie's a little dour, and, and he's... A little bit. A little bit. He, he gets to be fun. Okay, like, bizarre choice that I don't get why they did it this way. In the Gamjabar scene... Why is the litany against fear, like, whispered and mumbled and, like, intercut between, like, Jessica and... It's just not very strong. Do you know what the litany against fear is, Derek? Is that the little things that she kept repeating or she was saying during that scene? Yeah, it's, like, the most famous, like, phrase, like, in these books. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Right? It's awesome. Like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of... It's all chopped up. And chopped Yeah, it doesn't hit the way it's supposed to hit. For me, like, that's a phrase it's supposed to have some weight to it and there's nothing. I don't know. Maybe you didn't feel the same way. Did you feel like you got that that's no, like... I mean, I was it was something that I recognized that was like... Uh, important, at least to her character, because she repeats it again. She uses phrasing again like later on in the movie yeah i think she does uh, at, at points so like i understood that this was kind of something that calmed her but also like maybe it was like a mantra for her or the, like her or, like the bene Gesserit, maybe yeah. yeah i think it's like a bene Gesserit. yeah it was a little weird because like she was very ecstatic in that moment kind of inconsolable so like it was also hard to understand what she was saying in that moment you, you might be right it definitely doesn't hit as hard as it maybe it needs to, if if that's what you're saying, that it comes from the book like that. Yeah. I love the cast in general. just didn't think they had too much to do. And that's like an example, right? Like that's somewhere where you were really – where like a strong performance would, would make you be like, holy shit, she like killed that scene, right? And like I just don't think you, you get that there. In general, I didn't even really go super duper into this. Uh, and this is like a personal thing and maybe like it's just me. When I said I didn't love his artistic choices, like there are some things that like are cool and whip-ass. The Bene Gesserit uniforms are really cool. I love the dress uniforms of the Atreides family. Even the Harkonnen uniforms are, like, not bad. But I didn't like the bulky Atreides armor, the kind of bulky design of their ships. Everything looked a little, like, I don't know, legoey or, like, blocky. I didn't love, like, the sort of brutalist design of everything. I know you really liked it, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just conditioned from, like, you know, like, Denny Villeneuve, he loves that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. you see it all over like blade runner 2049 and like the arrival the arrival just all the sparse brutalist minimalist design yeah i don't know i mean in the other ones at least there's some color of life to it you know like blade runner has like that neon even arrival has like some i don't know a bit more naturalistic scenes to kind of like balance it out this felt very like i guess that makes it feel like an alien world maybe but like i don't know it felt very just like you could have done something a little more it, it's, it's so desaturated and it doesn't feel like it reaches for the stars with this design right i do get that that's a fair critique i do like how it contrasts against like you know like the arrakis desert you know like i think mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with like greek fraser's uh uh cinematography where he just frames these just massive structures against like the the desert yeah, and, the scale's um, really good yeah, the scale is really good. Like, the fucking the sandworms. I mean, we can't talk about Dune without talking about the sandworms, but... Uh, 
I do think it's funny that like in the beginning they're like, oh, you gotta do this funny walk to yeah uh, dodge the sandworms and like not catch their attention. But then like they never do it again in like the the first half of this movie. I guess every time they're they're like actually in the sand, they're already being fucked by the sandworms. So <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> right because like they got the thumper and then like the the scene with the the spice crawler getting getting eaten i guess they're already in the midst of getting screwed over by the sandworms it's always people sprinting like at the last minute it's not people trying to like traverse long distances over the sand without attracting attention yeah i get what you're saying what do you guys think okay things i liked i liked the implementation of the shields i thought the shields were super cool mm-hmm. um what did you think of that you guys like that it was a little confusing to me at first like what are the rules of the shield but then i think i caught on and understood. Like, what's your understanding of what the shields are? So my understanding is that it protects you from quick attacks, but slower attacks are what can penetrate the shield and kill you. Yeah, basically. So, like, the shield penetrates things that are slow-moving, like, including air, right? So you can breathe when you have one of these things on, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, but it doesn't permit quick projectiles, right? So you can't use, like, guns, knives, throwing weapons, anything like that, because they all move too fast. They would get stopped by shields. So that's why people use swords in this, like, mm-hmm. universe or whatever, right? Mm. And um, they do have lasers, though, right? They do have advanced weaponry. You did see a couple of lasers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And rockets and guns. I mean, you see yeah, a bunch there's, of Yeah, there's a fair amount yeah. of that as well. And uh, Yeah, but there, there is a reason that everyone's using a knife, even though everyone has, you know, this super advanced technology. Um, but I thought it just made for really cool fights. I liked the the blue and the red, and um, I thought the fight scenes were really cool, really well done. So I just I appreciate yeah, I, especially the the final one with the Jason Momoa. I thought that was a really cool cool sequence. Yeah, he took down like a million dudes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The slow blade penetrates the shield, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I did like the one scene that Josh Brolin really got as Gurney Halleck. I'm sure he's going to get more screen time in, in part two. I, I mean, I know he is. But we don't know what happens to his character, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. Uh, yeah, I, I think the shields are cool. A little bit of like world building in there and uh, getting with the lore of the of the book, right? And, and it's one thing I thought looked cool in a movie where like my general complaint would be there aren't enough cool-looking things. Like That's one thing that did look cool. I thought the yeah. delegation at the beginning... Like arriving at Planet Caladan, that was cool too. That was really cool. The, yeah. the design there was interesting and kind of weird. And that's one thing that is weird and as flawed a movie as it is. That's one thing the Lynch version does have. It's incredibly bizarre and like visually distinctive, um, which is something yeah. you get with Lynch. Which I don't know. I I didn't get as much from the Denny version. The one thing I think I like the most was the introduction of the Stilgar character. I thought that scene was so fun and like this idea of lore that it just seems so obvious but like needed to be seen on screen where like this is a desert planet so like the substance that is most cherished is water so like the idea of spitting is the most respectful thing you could do in that situation Mm. versus like other people are like they're like whoa what the hell dude you're fucking spitting in front of our duke but then to have Jason Momoa's character of Duncan Idaho recognized like, oh, no, no, no. Hold on, everyone, chill. This is respectful. I'm going to do it. You should do it, too. I really like that scene because it was, it was also played for some um, some laughs, too. I thought it was a really funny scene. Yeah, not, yeah. not a super funny movie, uh, but that worked. And you know what? It's, it's good that, like, not everybody's quipping all the time, right? Like, I think that that's yeah. good. I think it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah. 
especially with all these Marvel movies, where it's like a quip every five seconds, and I I, I appreciate it a little more uh, somber tone. Not everything has to be jokes. And I do feel like this movie is, like, for adults. I think you need patience. I think you need to, like, pay attention to things. And it takes, like, very interesting artistic choices where not everything's just explained to you. And, like, you know, like, I think the best example is, like, what's up with in the beginning of the movie? Like, before even the Warner Brothers logo shows up, it's got that little subtitle, right? Like, what is that? I feel like that just jolts you out of, like, your seat a little. You're like, what is that, you know? Because, like, there's a little text that displays. It's like, dreams are messages from the deep. And you're not used to seeing anything before, like, you know, the the Warner Brothers logo and, like, the, the opening credits or whatever. And and it shows up before that. And, and it's really interesting that that, that they did that. And, it, and there's no attribution to the quote at all. You don't know who says it. It's just a little text on the screen, which I thought was was really interesting. Um, was there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? Man, um, like, I don't know. There's so much, like, these books touch on, like, ecology and, like, myth and religion and, like, what is a messiah and, like, what should a good leader be and, like, I don't know, prophecy and predestination. And, like, there's, there's so much that these books try to touch on and cover um and you can't get all of it from the movie so i definitely think if you're in science fiction definitely read the books man there's so many other like things that we haven't even touched on like the arab and muslim inspired nature of the fremen and their myths and religion there there are just so many other aspects here that you know it, it would take so long to cover everything but there's just there's a I, lot i here. would it's like really to rich. see some some actual Middle Eastern actors in, in the Fremen roles in part two, maybe. Mm-hmm. I do think uh, that's a little bit missing. Yeah, that would definitely be cool. Yeah, well, I also want to talk about the box office a little bit, because it did pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did uh, $40 million over the opening weekend. Pretty good. Yeah, and it was a day and date with HBO Max, so we don't know if it hurt its numbers. But, I mean, you have to imagine that that's still a pretty good take, yeah. Especially because yeah. you can easily watch on HBO Max. So is this yeah. the death of your thesis that the day and day HBO Max thing is killing the releases? I still think it's bad because like forty million, it's it's pretty good. It's like a good number, but considering like one point nine million people watched, that's the number that they gave on HBO Max. I mean, that translates to a decent clip that could have gone to the theatrical box office, right? To be conservative, let's just say each HBO Max view is the equivalent of one ticket, even though most likely more than one person is going to be watching when you have HBO Max, right? So 1.9 million times, I don't know, what, $15 a movie ticket? That's that's almost $30 million, right? That's what, $28, $28.5 million. So if you add that on top of the $40 million, that's that gives you what? 68, 70 almost? Right. That's like a Marvel movie, pandemic Marvel movie haul, right? And it's interesting because I've seen a lot of the reports like, oh, this was a success. Like, this was like a great weekend. But like, you think about like Halloween Kills had a better opening weekend than this. Like, uh, Did no it time really? to die. Yeah. I believe it had a $49 million opening weekend. 
And then, yeah. like, No Time to Die, it was deemed, like, not successful, but yet it had a 55 million opening weekend. But also, the, you know, it didn't have a date, date, right? There was no other way to watch yeah. it other than theaters, and it still only made 55. So, like, I understand, like, when people say, like, oh, that wasn't that great. It's interesting, like, the, the narrative that, like, I think the media sometimes tries to create around, um, yeah. you know, box office and everything, where, like, honestly, the word of mouth, I think, is great on this movie. I think a lot more, I think it's going to have think, a... Yeah. I think it's going to have a good second weekend too, and really propel and the fact, it. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that it, they they definitely announced Dune Part Two, like people are like, oh, whoa, this was so good that they they're gonna they, you know they greenlit the Part Two. Like, hopefully, more people will go watch it. Yeah, and I mean, like Halloween, the Marvel stuff, they're all like IP based, right? So, like, yeah, I guess you could call Dune an IP because there's so much stuff that's that's come out of it, but like. It's not IP on the same level as, like, an existing cinematic franchise that people love, right? Like, the Halloween series is like that. Um, no Time to Die, James Bond is, is like that, you know? So it's it's, it's different from all those. Um, yeah, definitely. So I, th- I think $40 is a good haul. So um, enough to get Part 2 greenlit. So. Yeah, that's all that mattered to me. I just need a, I need a Part 2. Yeah, I'm, I, I, as much as much as I had my complaints about the movie on first watch um i'm really excited for a part two i still want to see it so yeah psyched psyched for doing part two psyched for dune to be like in the zeitgeist we're going to be talking about dune and reading dune and watching dune movies and discussing dune and yeah man well we all had differing opinions on this one but i I think in the end we landed on somewhere where at least we are excited to see this vision play out in, in a second movie yeah um also i mean i don't know if you guys know this there's gonna be a series i believe on hbo max that like center on the uh, Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Danny Villeneuve's actually directing like the pilot for that. This is definitely becoming like a cinematic you know, universe now with like two part movies and then a series and you never know. Maybe they'll adapt more books too. Yeah. Just get me more uh, Charlotte Rampling and Rebecca Ferguson. I'm good. I, I do think the Bene Gesserit are really interesting. I think they're, they're a really cool part of the, the Dune lore. So I'm, I'm glad that they're going to focus on that. Well, I guess if that is it, that will conclude this week's episode. Uh, Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me in my writing at strangeharbors.com, and you can also find me on social media at strangeharbors on Twitter and Instagram. What about you guys? You can find me on the planet Arrakis being eaten by sandworms. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you do the shuffle. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. walk without rhythm, and you won't attract the worm. What about you, Derek? Uh, You can find me at the world's okayest photos and screen agents guild on instagram uh if you like this podcast the easiest way to support our podcast is to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts whether it be apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or any of the other popular podcast apps if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and give us a great star rating it really helps to get our podcast out to more people yeah and if you have any questions comments suggestions about our episode on dune feel free to shoot us a line at jeff at strangeharbors.com we like to get your listener mail and sometimes we read it on the pod so feel free to shoot us that email. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you next week, everybody. See you guys then.